0: Well, let's, yes. Well, that was very well done. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the blessings that you've given to us. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word together. We think now of some of those who are sick, suffering, and we pray for your encouragement for them. We pray for healing. Lord, we trust your will in all these things. And we pray, Lord, for your guidance for each of us to know how to come alongside those in our assembly who are hurting. we Thank you, Lord, for the way you have worked in us to demonstrate love for one another, to truly love one another from the heart because of the love that you have shown to us. Lord, now as we look into your word, we pray for your guidance and that this will be a profitable time for eternity. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Okay, today I'd like to continue some thoughts that I know you guys have all been waiting with bated breath since a couple of years ago. I spoke on David the shepherd king, David. So my question to start with is, what is the biggest event that happened in the life of David? Slaying Goliath. That's the first one that comes to mind for probably everybody, right? That's a big one. Well, I already spoke on that, actually. So that's not going to be at this time. Um, some people will jump to the Bathsheba incident, because that was a time when uh, you can look as, as you read through the life of David, you can see things going downhill in his personal life, his family life. A lot of bad stuff happened after that event. And certainly these are great events and a lot of others in the life of David. Um, Inspired accounts, we study them to our profit, but I don't think those are the most significant ones. I think that the most significant event in David's life was when Excuse me. When God made God made a covenant with David, we call that covenant the Davidic covenant. So it should be easy to remember. Davidic covenant. Cool theological terms are not always easy to remember, but this one is the Davidic covenant. Well, it's a major uh, aspect of God's plan for time and for eternity. Uh, turn to two Samuel chapter seven, and I hope our brief discussion here about the Davidic covenant excites us to see the fulfillment of it, to rejoice in how great and glorious our Savior is. Second Samuel chapter 7, and we'll go ahead and begin at verse 1 for some context. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, this would be King David of course, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. I've always thought Nathan had a pretty easy job as the prophet for David, because at least up to this point, it was a pretty safe bet. Whatever David was going to do, whatever was in his mind had been put there by the Lord, so you just had to rubber stamp it. Yep. Whatever you want to do, go and do it. The Lord's with you. Well... Actually, that night, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 4, But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. "...wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So up to this point, we see... um, you remember they came when Israel came out of Egypt and there was a time of the judges and we had this cycle of where Israel would follow the Lord and then their children would not follow the Lord, they would abandon the Lord, the Lord would allow judgment to come in, and then oh, they would turn back to the Lord and he would send them a deliverer and then repeat the cycle. And so what he's saying here is that cycle is going to be stopped and there's going to be no more of that. They will be living in their own place, the land promised to the nation of Israel that God promised them, and they will not be disturbed again. Well, that's pretty spectacular news. Um, So continuing on, there's more news. Um, Verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. You wanted to build me a house? No, you don't get to, but I'm going to make you a house. And here's what God means by that in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. You remember that incident with Saul. Saul was the anointed king of Israel, picked by God. Saul did some good things. Actually, I mean, if you rank him next to the rest of the kings of Israel, he looks pretty good in a lot of ways, but but he was not wholeheartedly following the Lord. Um, And so uh, he was removed. God removed him. But God is here promising, David, that will not happen with you and with your house. My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So quite a lot of promises in here. David's name, God would make David's name great. He would appoint a place for Israel to own, to live in securely without any affliction anymore, give David rest from his enemies, um, and make a house for David. And this is really the big point. He's going to raise up and establish the kingdom of David's physical descendant. This son would build a house for God's name, and he would establish the son's throne of his kingdom forever. And notice the father-son relationship. God himself would claim this person as a son, be a father to this person. He says that, hey, if this guy sins, then I will correct him with a rod of men, but I'm never going to do what I did with Saul. It's a true father-son relationship in that sense. So in the summary, I, I kind of look at verse 16 as a summary of the whole thing. David's house and kingdom will endure forever. David's throne will be established forever. Now I want you to look and notice that's all what God's is going to do, right? Now, when people make agreements, you've generally got something that one party is going to do and something that the other party is going to do. So what's David's part here? What are the conditions of this covenant? Good. I'm glad nobody came up with one because uh, there aren't any. This is an unconditional covenant. David doesn't have to do a thing. God is simply making promises, making a covenant with him saying, this is what I'm going to do. Nothing can change God's purpose or plan in regard to those promises. We could look at uh, 1 Chronicles 17 to get a little more information where this same event is related there. I'm just going to pick out a couple verses for the sake of time here where we get a little bit more information. First Chronicles 17 and verse 10, um, in parallel where in 2 Samuel, David was told that he would have rest from his enemies. We find out in 1 Chronicles 17, 10, God says, and I will subdue all your enemies. So uh, in verse 14 of First Chronicles seventeen fourteen, 14, uh, God says, But I will settle him, that is the son, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So comparing these accounts, we say that where sometimes it's referred to as David's throne, it can also be referred to as his son's throne. Um, and I think uh, we can also see here that in... In both accounts, as with many prophecies, there is a near partial fulfillment in view as well as a far ultimate um, fulfillment in view. Now, the near, the near fulfillment, the partial fulfillment, of course, was through Solomon, David's son Solomon. He's the one who built the temple. Uh, we could read about that in First Chronicles chapters 22 and 28 that again review this covenant and discuss it with Solomon and regarding Solomon. Um, but we're going to skip that today to focus on the ultimate, complete fulfillment of the covenant. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Excuse me, Psalms. The book of Psalms actually doesn't have chapters. It's Psalm 2, to be precise, I suppose. Psalm 2. For the rest of the Old Testament, after this um, covenant, God made this covenant with David, for the rest of the Old Testament, the ultimate fulfillment of that Davidic covenant is a really big deal. So we'll just consider a couple of psalms, beginning with Psalm 2. We'd be here for a very long time if we went through all the psalms, the prophets, and everything else that mentions and discusses this coming kingdom. But we'll jumping here in Psalm 2. We'll begin at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is the word translated, actually, Christ is the word in Septuagint there, the Greek translation. That's what it means, the, the Messiah, the anointed um, Christ. So, so the earth, the rulers of the earth are taking their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So what we see here that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one is um, linked, I think, very closely with the Davidic covenant here. Because when we hear God saying, you are my son, we can hear echoes of God telling David in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When you see how God is going to terrify the kings of the earth and how this son, he's going to enable this son to crush them, rule them with a rod of iron. This sounds exactly like what we hear in uh, how God is going to subdue the enemies. So we see a connection here in Psalm 2 between the Davidic covenant and the promise of the Messiah. Turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is all about the Davidic covenant. That's the whole psalm. is that's, that's the topic. And it's a rather lengthy psalm. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but... We'll begin, uh, the heading says it's a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. Verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. So, this is what we're talking about the covenant that God made with David and the faithfulness of God that he will, in spite of what everything may appear, he will keep his promises. This is a matter of God's faithfulness and a matter of his loving kindness. In verses 5 to 18, the psalmist waxes eloquent about God's faithfulness and his power to keep this covenant both in the abstract and uh, also in uh, specific historical references. And then in verses 19 to 37, we see really a celebration of the Davidic covenant as the psalmist expresses it in terms of emphatic promises by God. However, we get to verse 38 then, and it turns out that all this that the psalmist has just been extolling God for and celebrating and being very excited about doesn't match his current experience. He doesn't see evidence of these truths right now. In fact, the very opposite of the Davidic covenant is taking place. You take a look at verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turn back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. Verse 46. Well, first of all, Do you see how that section, it's the very opposite of what God had promised in the Davidic covenant. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, Selah? Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached you, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. And it closes with, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So the inspired writer here is wrestling with, on the one hand, he knows God's character. He understands the unconditional nature of his promises to David. And on the other hand, what he observes all around him is in direct diametric opposition, these truths. So what does he do? I think he does something that uh, is a great example for all of us. He turns to the Lord in prayer and he urges God to fulfill this Davidic covenant as he promised. I think we can wholeheartedly concur with that sentiment as well. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. The Davidic covenant is a big deal in the writings of the prophets as well as in the Psalms. The prophets often denounced Israel's unfaithfulness and threatened God's judgment or explained God's judgment, if they were, the nation was in the middle of undergoing judgment at the time, the prophets were speaking for God in that way to draw the people back to God. But even while they were announcing judgment or telling the people, this is why you're getting it, because you really do deserve it, even while doing that, they frequently made mention of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as they foretold the future eternal, future, eternal kingdom of Israel, God's kingdom, a kingdom that God would bring about, with Israel as the dominant nation, living in peace without fear of enemies, with a Davidic king reigning forever. That's a very common theme through the prophets. We'll just consider an example here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, um, beginning in verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people who walk in darkness <laughs> excuse me the people who walk in darkness will see a great light those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them you shall multiply the nation you shall increase their gladness they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Verse 7 makes it very clear this is a fulfillment of. Of the Davidic covenant that we're talking about. Now, some of this has already taken place with the appearance of Jesus in Galilee. Remember, that's even quoted in the New Testament. So, likewise, we can expect the rest of this to be fulfilled as well. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. We'll pick one other prophet to look at. Daniel chapter 7. I want to begin in verse 13. Daniel saw this amazing vision about the future, extremely important vision for our understanding of God's plan. Daniel 7 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Quick question here for you. Put your logic caps on. How many everlasting, eternal kingdoms that rule over everything can there be? Good one. Excellent. (laughs) There can only be one, right? Because if there were two, one would have to rule over the other. If it was truly ruling over everything, that would be a logical contradiction. So, anyway, there can only be one. So we can see that the kingdom that's promised, the eternal kingdom, that's promised to David and, and the kingdom and the king here involved in Daniel 7 have to be linked. This must be the descent. this son of man has to be the descendant of David and his kingdom has to be the promised kingdom in the Davidic covenant. He's referred to as the son of David, the seed of David, uh, the descendant of David, just in those uh, passages we looked at in Second Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, Psalm 89 verse 4. So I hope that you're catching some of the excitement of this coming king, the fulfillment of this incredible covenant. It sounds truly wonderful. So let's now review the Davidic covenant in the New Testament. Where is the first place in the New Testament that has the Davidic covenant in view? Any thoughts? You're waiting for me to... Okay. All right, I'll tell you. It's pretty easy to find. It's the very first verse, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is how, oh, hey, we have somebody who is already there. Good, in the back. That must mean people in the back can hear me. That's good. I'm trying to speak up. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, <laughs> most of us don't enjoy reading genealogies. My son likes to pretend to, at least. But um, this, folks, is a thunderbolt of an opening for the New Testament. Every point mentioned in here is making enormous claims. The Messiah is identified. This one that the, whole, the Old Testament had been pointing toward is now identified. That's what we're saying. We're going to give you the, just genealogy, all right? The one whom God is going to fulfill these unconditional covenants with David and with Abraham. He's the Messiah, and these unconditional covenants that Israel's been waiting forever for, the guy is here, okay? So that's what's going on in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. So, of course, that raises the expectations of the fulfillment of these covenants that have been so yearned for for so long, wanting Israel wanting to see themselves settled in their own land with no more problems from enemies, um, being ruled by the son of David in a glorious kingdom, eternal kingdom of peace. So that's the point in referring to Jesus as the son of David or a descendant of David. When you read that phrase, that's What it's referring to is this this, uh, Davidic covenant. He's the one in whom the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. That's why the inspired author was led to pick these guys instead of any of the other famous people that could have been picked out of the genealogy. It wasn't just that these are two of the most famous. It's because these are the specific ones that God made unconditional covenants covenants with that Jesus is the fulfillment of. Now, if you're not totally convinced of that, turn to Luke chapter 1. And let's see how God uh, tells His angel to describe Jesus to Mary when Mary is first hearing about um, Jesus in Luke chapter one. The angel comes and tells Mary in verse thirty one, Luke one thirty one, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Already we're seeing Davidic covenant type stuff. Great name, father-son relationship. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Uh, Hard to get any plainer than that, I suppose. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is exactly just quoting the, the Davidic covenant. That's who this baby was to be. So this is a big deal because, and we know it's a big deal, because this is how God chooses to introduce Jesus to Mary in terms of the Davidic covenant. Well, some people believed God, right? They were more than excited for Jesus to, yes, excellent. We've been waiting for this forever. Bring this in. We are ready. Um well, I think of his disciples in particular and boy, they sure had a lot of ups and downs as they were waiting for the kingdom to finally come in and Jesus to take his seat on the throne of David. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Finally, you know, speaking of ups and downs, there wasn't more of a down probably than when they knew he was crucified, and probably not much more than an up when they uh, found out he was raised from the dead, right? So now they're on a high here, and uh, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus' resurrection, and what did Jesus do? He spoke in verse 3, Acts 1-3, he spoke a, bunch, a whole bunch to these disciples about this kingdom of God. Over a period of about 40 days, this kingdom of God, remember, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, the throne of David, all of this is related in the Davidic covenant. So this is what he's been teaching them about. And so in verse 6, naturally, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, just as an aside, there are many people, um, good Christian brothers and sisters, who are confused about how the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. Some imagine that God has already fulfilled this covenant, uh, all these promises to David, and they are somehow fulfilled spiritually through Jesus reigning in our hearts, for example. Um, they, these folks would reject the idea that Jesus will set up this glorious kingdom on earth "...and reign in Jerusalem, giving peace and security uh, to the nation of Israel, as is so eloquently described in the Old Testament." Instead, they these are dear brothers and sisters, but they would interpret these positions, or, or, all those passages, uh, allegorically and apply it to some kind of spiritual thing for us. Now, I'm not going to take the time right now to review or uh, the problems with that or address the problems of that method of interpretation and its conclusions... Uh, But we can see in this passage in Acts 1 that Jesus did not respond to his disciples by saying, No, you dummies, haven't you been listening to me for the last 40 days? There's no future for Israel as a nation. It's me ruling in your hearts. Pay attention to what I'm talking about. Now, he did not say that at all. Instead, he corroborated the disciples' understanding of a literal fulfillment of the kingdom um, by telling them that it's going to happen. He says God's fixed a time. But it's not for you to know the time, not for you to know the times and the seasons of what, uh, of when God's going to do this. Okay, moving into the epistles. So, you know, the disciples were left with, okay, so we don't know when. So we're still waiting for the coming of this kingdom and the son ruling on David's throne. Interesting in Romans chapter 1, the first epistle, the first chapter, um, Paul considered the Davidic covenant so important that he referenced it as part of the gospel. Isn't that striking? Look at this in Romans 1 and verse 3. Well, we'll, we'll start in verse 1 here. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So that's what he's talking about, is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So the gospel of God is concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Why does he throw that in there? Well, it's because of the Davidic covenant. This is part of God's plan, God's great plan. Flip over to Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, Second Timothy 2. Paul, again, Second Timothy would have been written towards the end of Paul's life, Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, which, you know, that's great advice stopping right there, right? And, of course, that's what we were doing this morning. But remember Jesus Christ, and he has some specific things to remember about him. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Yes, that's a very big deal. deal. Descendant of David, according to my gospel. You see, that's, this is pretty good company that this phrase, descendant of David, is in. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. It's a big deal. Now, I want to be clear that uh, while God's plan that Christ will fulfill the Davidic covenant is part of the good news, it is certainly possible and happens all the time that people are saved without having a clue about the Davidic covenant. I'm not saying you've got to fully understand the Davidic covenant before you can be saved. We sometimes think of the term gospel as everything in the gospel you've got to believe in order to be saved, but the gospel includes a lot of truth, okay? So, but... Nevertheless, I do want to emphasize that it is a very big deal, uh, and in fact, we, reading this and understanding that it is a big deal, it is a motivation, I think, to want to know more about it and to rejoice in it. So, we could very well have the same eager question as the disciples in Acts chapter 1, when will Jesus fulfill this Davidic covenant by reigning over the kingdom God promised? Turn to Revelation chapter 20, please. Revelation 20. In Revelation 19, we see Jesus returning to earth after the tribulation time, and then that's followed by Jesus setting up his kingdom in Revelation 20. And we'll just break in in Revelation 20, uh, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the t- their, their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now you can only reign with Christ if Christ is also reigning. So this is Christ setting up his kingdom, and he has these people reigning with him. The rest of the dead did not come to life. This is verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, notice that those who are raised from the dead to reign with Christ are said to be part of the first resurrection, which is a resurrection to eternal life. That's contrasted with this second resurrection, um, which is a resurrection to eternal damnation, as we see later in chapter uh, 20 of Revelation. So this first resurrection, the resurrection to eternal life, has several phases to it. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15.23 tells us that Christ is the first fruits of that. So in other words, this should be pretty exciting. This first resurrection is already started. It's already begun because Christ, the first fruits, has been raised from the dead. Okay? then we're told also in 1 Corinthians 15 there that uh, following Christ, after that, uh, then believers in Christ will be raised at the rapture. And we can read about what the rapture is like in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, which we won't take the time to go into all of these right now. But just to, I'm just trying to lay out some of the sequence here for you. Um, so after that, after that rapture, so we've got Christ raised from the dead. Then we're going to have this rapture where the believers in Christ are raised from the dead. Then there's going to be this period of tribulation time, and that brings us into Revelation 19, where at the end of that is when Christ will return to Earth and then set up His kingdom. Um, incidentally, while He is once He has, has setting up His kingdom there in Revelation 20 that is when I would understand the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and actually the new covenant as well. All of these will find their fulfillment in that kingdom. Um, since we're told in First Thessalonians four seventeen that after the rapture, we who belong to Christ will always be with the Lord, then I would understand that there in Revelation 19, when the Lord is returning to earth, that we will be with him because we will always be with the Lord. And so we will be part of those with him uh, as he is reigning in the thousand-year kingdom of Revelation 20. Now we read, and what we read about is people actually being raised from the dead at that point. Those would be tribulation saints, people who have trusted in Christ during that time of tribulation. What happens to them? Well, Revelation 20 tells us they are raised at that point. It's all part of the first resurrection, another phase of that first resurrection. They are raised with him, or raised to reign with him. At that time, um, I would tend to think that probably Old Testament saints would be raised at that same time as well in Revelation 20. That's my personal best guess. So, after the thousand years, we see there in Revelation 20 that there is going to be a final rebellion of men and Satan. The final judgment is also covered in Revelation 20. And then that glorious reign of Christ that began in this thousand year kingdom will flow into eternity. So when it talks about the Davidic covenant and eternal kingdom, that's how it's eternal. It goes from that, begins in that that uh, millennial kingdom time, and continues through eternity. Now we began our consideration of the Davidic covenant in the New Testament with Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the very first verse. I'd like to conclude with the last two statements of Christ recorded in the entire New Testament. Turn to Revelation 22 excuse me revelation twenty two and verse sixteen revelation twenty two sixteen I Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Not only is Jesus the Son of David, in whom the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled, he is the root as well. I take that to mean he is the originator of this covenant. He's the originator of this plan. He created the lineage through which he himself would come. What a glorious, sovereign, faithful God. We see Christ's final word to us in Revelation twenty-two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And so we respond with a beloved disciple. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. We marvel at your plan. We marvel at your power and your sovereignty the vastness of it, and yet the details of it. And Lord, we look forward so much to the eternal reign of peace. We give you thanks that you have brought us into it, even us. As far as I know, Lord, we're all Gentiles here who had no claim on any of this. And yet we will be with you and enjoy the fulfillment of this covenant you made with David 3,000 years ago. So, Lord, we give you thanks, and we eagerly await your return for us, your bride, And the glory we will have with you forever.